This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards, both in 2017 and 2018. So, if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets west chase thomas pod the chase thomas podcast um my nephew needs me to record see i hate i already hate it i hate it all right welcome to a tuesday night edition of the chase thomas podcast i am chase thomas the aforementioned chase thomas i like saying aforementioned instead of aforementioned because aforementioned just puts emphasis on the a and it sounds cooler so i i knowingly mispronounce that but that's fine um with me on the line right now, Boston Sports Journal's Connor Ryan. Connor, good evening. How are you? Doing pretty well. How are you doing? I am good. Um, how is Duncan? I, I will say I follow you on Instagram and um, you took a picture of, it looked like a Jurassic Park um, <laughs> car at a Starbucks, but I didn't notice the Jurassic Park car. I thought you were making a Starbucks joke because you're such a big Dunkin' Donuts person that like that you're asking how much to buy something at Starbucks because you were just not familiar with uh, the grande and latte experience there. And you were legit. You were just making a joke on that front that you were just team Duncan. But uh, after um, another look, I realized that it was about uh, Jurassic park and um, the vehicle from it. So I apologize for, for missing the joke the first time, Connor. All good. And, you know, I guess that means my clout online is working pretty well because I think that's what most of the replies were. I was like, oh, my God, really? Like, I've only seen, like, one of those Jurassic Park Jeeps before. Everyone was, like, in my comments and replies saying that, like, why you at a Starbucks? So apparently <laughs> I've got the reputation I have to uphold now. So good to see that uh, my Twitter profile is continuing to do very, very well. Have you, have you had Starbucks recently? Oh yeah, no, I you know okay. if, if you know if you're in a, a desperate need for some caffeine, you know you got you got to make do. You know I'm not gonna fall on the sword and not get you know just like hold out for Dunkin' Donuts if I'm in somewhere where it's not gonna be available. So you go into Starbucks, you know get like a I like those refreshers. Have you seen those ones? Like it's like a it's kind of like a juice drink with caffeine, which is probably woefully unhealthy for you. But like mm. you know it's not exactly like coffee, so I'll pop in there and get it. So. I'm not an animal chase. I'm not gonna just not not gonna have caffeine, but right. you know, but still got 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 to uphold the reputation. So if there's a Dunkin', if you know, I'm on a street and there's a Dunkin' and a Starbucks, like yeah, I mean, you know how that result's gonna go out, but you know, oh, you got to make do sure. though. Um, I will say that at least once a week, I go back and watch the SNL skit with Casey Affleck at Dunkin'. 
it still cracks me up more than anything in the world. I it just everything is so great. And Casey just throw in the 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 just the big can of or just the big coffee cup. The dudes. Right. I mean to close it up. It's all my favorite part of the day is going to a Dunkin' and taking a dump and dunk. It's everything about it. I mean, it's it, it's funny because it's true. Like that's like the most biting <laughs> part of it is like we all know at least five people who are Casey Affleck and that's kids. So. It's it's great. Um, haven't had Dunkin' in a while. I haven't had Starbucks. I'm just a. I've gotten extremely boring in my late twenties, where my lunches are the same, and I also just I make the same dark roast coffee every morning. So I make it myself, and then um, when I go through Dunkin' or something like that, it just it's extremely sweet, and I'm just like, oh god, I'm washed. This you you, you eventually turned over to like the actual like good side of coffee, coffee drinking. We don't have to go every day. And like, honestly, it's probably better to not go every single day. They have like the sugary crap that like Duncan and Starbucks gives you. So you're, you're one of the good ones. And I have not crossed over to that level yet, but you know, maybe one day down the line, I'll be able to do that. But I mean, if I'm still, you know, if, if people on Twitter are clamoring for, for Duncan content, you know, I, I have to do it. You know, it's my hands are tied at this point, you know, it's it's part of your brand. Um, another part of your brand is Boston Bruins coverage, and um, they did not win the Stanley Cup. They they lost, Connor. I don't know if you. Um, I I've been hearing the final. I've been hearing about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. They uh, they did not win, and the St. Louis Blues completed um, a ridiculous run from worst to first, all that great stuff. Um, how did the Blues beat the Bruins? Because we talked a little bit early on in that series, but ultimately. What was the the biggest reason for you? Now that we've had a couple of weeks to, to to digest and think about what happened in that series, what about that series pushed it towards the Blues and away from away from the Bruins? Uh, I mean, you know, you have to give credit to the Blues and kind of their you know the schemes they had and their kind of game plan in terms of you know guys like you know Colton Pareko. I think you know I think he was one of those ones who got like third or fourth place in Conn Smythe voting, and I mean he deservedly so because I mean he did a fantastic job with him and a guy like Petrangelo, but I think it all revolved around the fact that they were able to neutralize that top line for the Bruins. And, you know, when you have, you know, Brad Marchand and Patrice Berger are not able to really do much of anything, especially during five-on-five play. I mean, you saw in, in that game seven where I think only one penalty was called. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone was expecting going into game seven, even if it is on home ice at TV Garden. You know, you can't go into a game like that hoping that you're going to get, you know, three or four cracks on the power play and hoping that, it's going to be like how it was in game three where they went like, you know, four for four on four shots or anything like that. That's not going to happen during game seven of the Stanley Cup final. So when you go on and it's five on five play for most of it, the Blues have the luxury of rolling out, uh, you know, uh, Petrangelo's pairing or Pareko. I think like both those guys were on the ice for, it was some crazy stat where it was like the Blues only went like nine minutes or so. One of those two guys went on out there all the time, which, which is mind blowing, but that's, you know, when you have two guys that can do that, that that play that goes a long way in terms of uh, you know putting you on the road to success, especially in a one game kind of situation like that. But I think it all comes down to the fact that Bruins weren't able to get their big guns going, especially on five on five play. And again, it's one of those things where you know people can point out the injuries, and granted, the Bruins had a lot of injuries, but I mean that that's still not the the, the mindset you should be taking when Ryan O'Reilly, who was fantastic the whole series, pretty much playing since the second round with a broken rib. I mean. Those things all come, everyone's banged up at that point in the season. So it's, it's, you know, a tough pill to swallow for the Bruins. But when you look back on it, it's unfortunately it's one of those situations where the guys that kind of carried you all this way, the guys you've leaned on, you know, the start of the year when it was pretty much a one line team before they had guys like Coyle and Johansson, 
those are the guys that unfortunately weren't able to produce there down the final stretch. And uh, when you look at, you know, a guy like Brad Marchand, who was fantastic for most of the playoffs, then had one of his worst overall, you know, one game kind of performances in that where, I mean, he, he has that bizarre line change at the, you know, the, the final seconds of the first period that allows the Blues to score a goal with, I think, six seconds left. I mean, as soon as that happens, you know, a 2 nothing lead for the Blues, six seconds going to overtime, uh, going into the first intermission. I mean, that, you know, I, there are people who, I mean, you have 40 minutes to go, but still, I feel like that was kind of the nail in the coffin. So it, it, it's a tough blow for the Bruins, but when you look back on it and, you know, it's a, a brutal situation and you drop it on home ice, but it all goes back to the, that top line just wasn't able to produce. Where does Boston go from here? Uh, so right now in terms of how they improve, I mean, it's one of those situations where they can very much roll out most of the same team they had last year. And I mean, they're still going to be good. Like I, I don't expect them to, you know, drop, you know, or, you know, have a step back. You have so many younger guys who really kind of either broke out or should going into this next season improve. So Charlie McAvoy. So what is their contention window? Would you say like how many years do you think they can contend with this group? In this I, th- I think, I think at this top tier level, I'd say two to three years where you have okay. guys like, Bergeron and Krejci still playing at a relatively high level and it all kind of hinges on how you know a guy like McAvoy improves and Brennan Carlo who was fantastic for most of the playoff run David Pasternak people still forget you know only going to turn 23 this year Jake DeBrusk came close to 30 goals at a pretty up and down year for him so a year with you know more consistency with David Krejci should help him out so it's all about kind of that balancing act of you know as long as you know guys like Bergeron and Krejci Marshan, those guys don't take a step back and these younger guys, you know, should continue to get better and better. They should be kind of at that same level or, you know, possibly even a little bit better going into next year. But the biggest question is what's the rest of the competition going to be like? Because that's where it really bites the Bruins in terms of not being able to steal the deal in game seven, where the road they're going to have, you know, I mean, play the Blues. Blues are a tough team, had some tough matchups, played the Maple Leafs, but, you know, the Lightning are not going to, are not going to get swept uh, in the, in the first round, once again, you know, the capitals, you don't imagine any that bounce out of the first round again, like the road's going to get tougher and tougher and you can't, you know, expect it's going to be paid the way it was this past year where you go through, you know, the blue jackets and the, the hurricanes, you know, the Maple Leafs are going to be back and it, you know, I, you know, I don't think anyone would be shocked if the lightning once again, kind of go scorched or contend for, you know, 55, 60 wins and kind of puts it all together. I mean, it's not going to be nearly as easy. So that's the biggest thing kind of sending away the Bruins is how the rest of the division, the rest of the Eastern Conference is going to be much better next year. And that's going to kind of dictate what their real contention window is going to be. Did you like their draft at all? Uh, it wasn't so bad. I mean, like the whole thing is, you know, you saw the kind of guys that they had available kind of uh, later in that, that, you know, 30th overall pick. You had a few guys who had slipped quite a bit. They had that Kaliev kid who, really kind of lit up the, uh, you know, the junior leagues in Canada when he was, uh, but he, he dropped because he was a, a younger player that, you know, scored 50 goals, but, you know, there's concerns about his work ethic. One of those typical guys that will slide down the list. So they ended up going for John Beecher, who's a, uh, was pretty much kind of a, a guy who gets kind of buried a little bit down in the depth chart with the Team USA uh, under 18 team, which was absolutely loaded. So in other, other years, you know, this kid very well could have been the 15th, you know, overall pick in that range, but, on a team where you have guys like Jack Hughes and Alex Turcotte, Trevor Zagras in front of him on the depth chart center, he's going to get buried down quite a bit in that lineup. But the Bruins, you know, are very high on him. You, we saw him a little bit at development camp. And the one thing that stands out to him, he's a big body. He's got 6'2", 6'3". got fantastic wheels. I mean, that kid, like, was leaving, like, multiple, you know, top-level prospects 
in the Bruins, uh, you know, prospect kind of group in the dust. I mean, he's got like the tools that really kind of stand out all depends on how his offensive kind of feeling, uh, you know, where that kind of is. And he's going to Michigan next year. Uh, I expect him to get kind of top six minutes right out of the gate there with the Wolverines. So if it's one of those ones where he kind of runs with it and shows the potential he has, he goes from being a guy that, you know, I compared him a little bit to like a guy like Sean Corrali, who, you know, is not who you want to imagine, I guess, as your 30th overall pick in the draft, you know, a fourth line center. But he's kind of a guy who, you know, Sean Corrali is not like a, you know, guy that's going to not impact the game. He's a big, you know, big center, uh, great speed, stuff like that. But I think the Bruins hoping he kind of morphs into more of like a, a Charlie Coyle or, you know, Charlie Coyle when he's playing at the best of his abilities where at the NHL level, big body, you know, great skater and can, you know, average, you know, in that 50, 60 point range. If he gives you that and kind of stabilizes, you know, a middle six kind of spot for the Bruins, I think they'll be happy with him. And then after that, it all kind of falls into place with a few other guys that uh, are, you know, a little bit of, you know, projects, guys who are going to be further down the line. But I can see if Beecher really kind of runs with what he does in Michigan, uh, he could be kind of up in the system in the next, you know, two, three years. So, He's definitely the guy out of this group to, you know, look forward to. How do they stack up in the Atlantic next year? Uh, I mean, I kind of see it the same way it was, you know, the last two years pretty much where, I mean, I don't expect Tampa Bay to take a step back. If anything, you know, you have so many of those younger players they have. Braden Point, who you expect they're going to re-sign, you know, he's coming off a year where he almost had 50 goals and he's kind of the fourth fiddle on that team when you have, I mean, guys like Stamkos, you have Kucherov in the year he had. I mean, I expect Tampa Bay to once again kind of be uh, kind of the team to beat just in the whole NHL. Um, and then you look at Toronto. I mean, you know, Toronto's still going to have, you know, the young guys who are going to continue to get better. Uh, Austin Matthews, you saw, had kind of a, a breakout performance in the playoffs against the Bruins. They still have to re-sign Mitch Marner, which is the biggest question for them as to, you know, where they're freeing up that money. But uh, I kind of like some of the moves that the Knicks did in this offseason in terms of trading from a position of strength. You know, they get rid of Nazem Kadri, who was honestly probably the Bruins' biggest weapon the last two times they played them in the playoffs, you know, taking stupid suspensions and hurting the team. You know, they get, they get a guy like Tyson Barry, who should help them out on the blue line. Alexander Kofor, who's a very kind of underrated player who will help them out. Um, but the same the same thing with the, the Maple Leafs every single year is, all right, you're going to lose Dirty Wells, Ron Hainsey, Jake Gardner's going to be gone. Uh, you know, Morgan Riley is a good, you know, offensive defenseman. But even with the addition of guys like, you know, Jake Muzzin, and Tyson Barry, I, I still don't buy, you know, what the, the Maple Leafs have on that blue line in terms of holding off the Bruins when they're playing at their best. So, you know, who knows? Maybe this upcoming year is where the Maple Leafs finally, you know, win game seven or, you know, they, they're able to leapfrog the Bruins for second place in the Atlantic. But that, that blue line for the Maple Leafs still scares me in terms of having, you know, the unit that you can rely on during the long haul, the postseason runs that will get you to the cup. And in the Maple Leafs case, even just over the Bruins, which, it's, it's tough luck for the Maple Leafs because, you know, they have the talent to make a deep postseason run, but every single year they keep on running into the Bruins. So maybe next year's the, the year it all changes, but I think those top three are still going to stay the same for next year and probably for the next couple of years, if, you know, if anything. Who do you think is more likely to get back to the Stanley Cup final, the Blues or the Bruins next year? It's a tough one. Uh, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to put too much like the Stanley Cup hangover and that kind of thing for it, but I – as overall, in terms of who I think has most potential, uh, I still like what the Bruins have. I mean, I, again, I expect them to once again be that team that was, you know, probably the team to beat once you had, you know, the Lightning and Cats both knocked out of that first round. You know, the Bruins, you know, Zeno Char is going to be, you know, 42-43 uh, this upcoming year, but 
you saw more and more as the playoffs went on, went along where you had guys like Charlie McAvoy, uh, you know, Brennan Carlo, Tory crew kind of uh, hold their own on the blue line. Matt like who's one of the most kind of underrated, you know, third pairing guys uh, in the Eastern conference at the very least, you know, he's a guy who should really improve as well. Um, so I think you look what the Bruins have and how, you know, how they're built and how they still have that, you know, that foundation core that's been there for the last decade or so. And as long as you have guys like Bergeron and Krejci who continue to kind of hold up their end of the bag and continue to play, you know, at the level they were at, or even, you know, maybe a slight dip, but you have younger guys continue to get better and better. I expect them to once again really be in the mix. And all credit to the Blues, too. I mean, I, I imagine they're going to be right in the kind of the mix in the Western Conference as well. And they might, you know, even have a better chance in the West compared to what, you know, very well could be kind of a bloodbath in the Atlantic. But um, I expect both teams to definitely be in the playoffs next year. Just kind of imagine who you know, where the chips fall in the playoffs. Because you can go through all your planning for how everything turns out. And you know, everyone is expecting the, you know, the lightning. We're going to run the table, which they pretty much were doing the whole year. Then, you know, you go one round in and the, the caps are out, the lightning are out, and everyone's losing their mind. So everything kind of gets turned on its head very, very quickly. Yeah, you can't really look at anything like that, like in other sports, because the NHL playoff system is just so weird now. And you have situations like this year where the Bruins had playing round one and just like what that does to people. And like the way we looked at uh, the Blue Jackets and different teams like that of just like it, it was kind of ridiculous. And certain teams benefited from the format more than others. And it's just the I, I think the NHL wanted to establish these rivalries and the, these teams playing each other a lot more often in round one and um just I, I understand their line of thinking but um I, I don't think this is good and if your some of your best teams get eliminated early I don't I don't know I, I don't think that's necessarily a a very good thing um the longer the playoffs go but um I don't know maybe they'll address it do you think this is the playoff format like five years from now it seems like when you look at all like the stuff that they go through in terms of, like the board of governors meeting, it seems like it's something they don't really want to budge on, even though the players themselves have been pretty outspoken and vocal about it. I remember, I think it was like in mid March, I think, you know, it was, I think Steven Stamkos or maybe it was head, it was one of the, the established guys in the Lightning was the one who was speaking out about it. And that was a point of the year where Lightning, you know, were kind of just cruising along. They were going to, they already had locked up that they were going to play a wild card team, which ended up not working out for them. But, look at the way that everything projected. He was kind of talking about how, you know, the Bruins and Maple Leafs have been probably the two other best teams in the entire Eastern Conference. And one of them is going to be sent home in, you know, in the first round, which, you know, I guess, you know, as you said, the NHL wants these early rivalries, but how much better would it be if, you know, the Bruins and Maple Leafs are both, you know, in the second, third round, you know, that you had these two major markets that, you know, draw so many people. And I mean, Maybe believe every year they get so hyped and so excited and they've got a fun, great team to watch. If they were able to, you know, get passed around, get even more excited in that city, but you saw how much Toronto ran with the Raptors in the run they had, like why, why are you taking out a few of these teams that, you know, have such a good following just to get that first round matchup. I mean, you saw like, it doesn't really matter what the matchup is. There's going to be good hockey played in the playoffs. So just because you want, you know, Bruins, Habs or Bruins, Maple Leafs, you know, doesn't mean it's, you know, you don't want to, you know, kind of spend all your bullets before the playoffs really start, you know, get going in the second, third round. So we'll see. I mean, it's always a crapshoot when it comes to how the NHL is going to go about their business. They got obviously the, the lockout and all that stuff they have to worry about, but it, it's all that stuff's always decided on a whim where it kind of comes out of left field. Like, you know, they have their board of governors meetings and then, uh, you know, at the last thing it's like, oh, yeah, what about the, the playoff format? Should we change that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now it's changed. Like, it, there's like, it, you can never tell. It's like, 
we start to do like a low key meeting and all of a sudden they have like a new CBA signed. Or it, it, like you can never tell. It's like, you know, like spinning a wheel. It's like Wheel of Fortune. You don't know what you're going to get in terms of these meetings when they get all these guys in the same room together. Like it's always such a crapshoot. Yeah, and I don't think a crapshoot is necessarily a good thing in professional sports. And you understand mm-hmm. like why teams and like GMs it, it drives you mad because you like it how do you how do you assess what uh where you're at with your team and how close you are to contention when you have these weird formats and um there's a lot of fool's gold there and I just I don't know. I think it's stupid. And this is just overthinking something very simple. But um Sebastian Aho. Aho? How did we how do we pronounce it? Aho? Aho. What, what are we doing? Aho. See, it, it, I don't know. Um, what happened with the restricted free agent stuff? What is what has happened in the last week and a half? What kerfuffle has unfolded um, based on his restricted free agency? Yeah, kerfuffle is a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, so we've got a guy like Sebastian Aho who's a restricted free agent. Obviously, it you know it gives you know a team you know his team the the Hurricanes a chance to match any offer that gets sent to him and. You rarely ever see these, uh, you know, these offer sheets ever come through the NHL where it's so hard to one, you know, free up the amount of money that, you know, puts, you know, that deal over the top when it comes to matching what the original team wants to sign him for. And then you have the compensation you have to give a team. So say you sign a guy, you know, if you're team A that has a player and your team B that offers that player, you know, five years, you know, $11 million annually, not only do you have to pay that money up, which is probably more than that other team wants to wants to surrender. So if you get that player good, you also have to give up four first round picks if it, you know, hits a certain price level. So congrats to, you know, we'll say it, you know, if we want to go beyond Aho and say like Mitch Moner and some team wants to sign him, congrats. You have to overpay the the Maple Leafs, you know, two, three million more annually than they want to pay. Congrats, you have Mitch Moner, but you have to one, overpay for him pretty much. And then you have to give up four first round picks as well, which is that's that's a tough you know tough hit for a guy who Mitch Marner is a great player, but do you want to sacrifice all of that just to get this one player into the fold? A guy who you know it's not like we're talking about you know Mitch Marner is you know top fifteen, top twenty player. He's not Nathan McKinnon or you know McDavid or one of those guys that's gonna like you put him in the lineup. You're getting ten, eleven more more wins. So look at Aho. He gets the offer sheet from the Montreal Canadiens for five years, eight point four five million completely blows up in their face like literally they they send out the they break this news everyone's like oh what are the hurricanes gonna do just get immediately roasted like the like the you know the owner of the of the hurricane Don waddell their gm is just like ripping the canadians for this offer because when you look at you know what yes yeah, well, can we at least have an aside here about this this like gentleman's agreement on restricted free agency in the nhl because this is a very common thing in basketball but in the nhl this is just something that the gms across the league i remember reading um uh just an interview of a former nhl gm and he was talking about that like after i forgot who was the the latest example before aho that i think it was like 10 years ago right where it happened it was the did it involve the oilers i forgot who it is it uh I think it was Penner, right? I think Penner was the only one who actually left. Oh, it was the Devils. Was it the Devils? Was it, to... Who was it? It was someone who really screwed over the other team, and other GMs around the league were all pissed at this one GM for making this move. And yeah. it was something like this unspoken thing where you just, yes, it's a thing that you can do, but it's a... Curse. No one ever does it, yeah. It's, 
Yeah, and it's not because it's not smart to do it and kind of poison pill another team and screw them over because you know they're going to match, but you're just going to kind of make it a little bit more difficult than it needs to be. But it's, I don't know, it's just very, almost very Canadian to do the very polite thing and just uh, avoid that kind of awkward right. um, situation. But it's just something that never happens. So yeah, yeah, like that, that aside is important because I think if you're a sports fan and you're like the NHL is not your go-to, I don't know if you necessarily know that like, the restrictive free agent stuff is like a thing, but like GMs have just collectively decided that like, yeah, we're not going to do that to other GMs around the league. Yeah, no, I mean, it's been like forever since you've seen one. It's been like five, six years. I, I want to say since there's even been an offer sheet, I think there's only been like nine times, you know, overall that there's been an offer sheet since the salary cap, which is after the 0405 walkout, which is just absurd. Like the fact that it, it happens so, so rarely like that. But again, as you said, it's like, you know, it, it, creates like, this level of hostility of like, how could you do this to a guy when you look at Carolina, they have to be, when that, like the number came in, they had to have been doing like backflips because, you know, you want to, they were kind of playing hardball with Aho and seeing, you know, what they could sign him to and, you know, trying to get a good deal for him, even though they have a bunch of cap space. But if, you know, if you're trying to steal Aho away from them and you're the Canadians, you give them, you know, you know, five, six years, at, you know, 10 million, you know, 11 million annually, you know, in five years, Avajo, who you know hit eighty plus points this year with Carolina, if he's making eight point four million, that's that's a great deal for the Hurricanes. So like when that when that offer came in, the Carolina had to have been thrilled. They're like, all right, we, we just have to match this eight million. Like you know, we we obviously kind of want to play hardball with them, but you know, it's not like we're getting like really squeezed there for for cash. So they'll gladly take that offer. So it it was one of those weird situations where like. I don't understand why the Canadians did it when, you know, you could have really kind of put, uh, you put Carolina in a, in a tough bind and, you know, they, they offered two, you know, 8 million annually, which, uh, you know, it wasn't like it was one of those ones where, you know, you really have to, you know, sweeten the deal with, you know, say you're Carolina and, you know, you get $11 million offer for them and it, you know, it sucks that you lose Aho, but you also get four first round picks. Then, all right, then, you know, you kind of take it what you can, like, Maple Leafs, I mean, the, the Canadians rather just made it so much easier for Carolina to haul in a guy like Ajo for, you know, good market value in, in maybe a year or two. Like that guy is already going to probably be an 80 point score going forward with that young Carolina team. And so 8 million annually, like they'll take it, you know, 10 times out of 10. So I don't understand why, why Montreal went that route with it. Cause you know, it, it obviously kind of extremely blew up in their face. I mean, they've been getting roasted by Carolina, like nonstop stuff. Like, like Carolina's Twitter is still ripping. Montreal like every single day so it's just weird it's I love how different some sports can be and right the the culture surrounding it and just um I don't know it, it's, well, it's fascinating and just watching the difference between hockey twitter and basketball twitter well that, like this is that, fascinating. Should, that should be an indictment on just like how the, the NHL offseason is is that like you have all this crazy stuff in the NBA like you have like Kawhi and Paul George and all this stuff people going nuts like for the NHL Twitter, like going nuts is when an offer sheet is like signed, <laughs> like not the player is going. It's like when an offer sheet has been signed. Like you have yeah. like you know like the like the NBA reaction gifs where it's like like Shaq like filming and like everyone losing their minds in the stands for like a slam dunk contest. That's NHL Twitter when like a, an offer sheet is presented, like not anyone's yeah. moving. Like so, yeah, they need their always... their woes. They need their wind horse. The NHL doesn't have like any. This could be you, Connor. This this is your future. We need you to be the next Woosh. That's what well, NHL Twitter needs. Well, the problem is I have to convince GMs to not like fight each other over an offer sheet. That's pretty much what 
is going on no, right people now. Love it if you can if you can word that and get some juicy stuff where like they just did it because you got in the back room and you're like the Canadians <laughs> are just tired of their lack of success and, and they're just they just said you know what fuck Don Waddell and they just did it like something like that. Yeah, that's that's yeah, when you yeah. need to start the pot. You have to word it like Woj does during the draft where we can't directly break the news. So it's like, right. you know, exactly. There's an offer sheet out there and it, uh, by all accounts, it's coming from a team that's not contending and Carolina is furious. Like, right, just yeah. all those little things that like, right. oh, that would just light all fan bases on fire. Right. Um, do you think the Hurricanes outside of the Ajo stuff and what, I mean, I guess you have to include that, but do you think they're having an okay offseason because they had a lot of question marks at Goldie, uh, Freeland and all these other dudes. Like they, they had a way more success than I think if you gave some true serum to the front office in Carolina, I, I don't think they would have told you they believe that team was going to get as far as they did this past year. Um, and they're kind of ahead of schedule in some ways, but like, do you think that they're having an okay offseason to get back? Because a lot of smart people that, I mean, I've been reading and just all that kind of stuff that I, it, it seems like there's a very distinct possibility. They missed the playoffs next year and like going from, and that's like the history of the hurricanes. If you go back through when they make the playoffs and they just have this, like they go, when they make the playoffs, they only go on long runs and then they don't make the playoffs for like eight years in a row. And then they go back and go all the way. Like, do you think Brenda Moore and this group are going to be able to get back and break this this mold of kind of like the Florida Marlins of the NHL, where right. it's like when they make it, they go they go big or go home. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's definitely one of those uh, situations where I mean you see it every single time in the NHL. I mean, you look at like the '06 Oilers and that team that and you know went very far again against the Carolina Hurricanes and a team that kind of can go boom or bust. And the thing with the Hurricanes is you know they had like kind of a mixed match kind of group of guys, you know, Robert Moore, you know, I, I think he's a great coach and did a good job of getting those guys to buy in. And they kind of had the whole, you know, bunch of jerks and tally to rally around them. But I think what separates them from the kind of, you know, the flavor of the week or, you know, the, the one or two teams every single postseason that goes on a deep run is, you know, they have such a good kind of young core and some young players that really kind of stand out that should continue to get better and better. So whether it's Ajo or Tara Vinan or Sveshnikov, who really impressed down the stretch for them. You know, they have some of those pieces in place. Again, you know, they have some good, you know, guys on the blue line that really help out. I mean, Jacob Slavin's a very good, you know, budding, like, fr not franchise defenseman, but a very, very good number one guy you can trust in all situations. Like, they have pieces all around the lineup. You know, goalies are where it gets a little bit tough in terms of just finding that stability. And, you know, they obviously, you know, ran the kind of the table with McElhaney and Mrazic last year. But when you look at overall of how, you know, the pieces kind of can fit into the roster and how some of these guys are, you know, not even, you know, 22, 23 years old, I expect them, you know, maybe if they don't make the playoffs this year, they're going to be right kind of in that, in that range where, you know, they either just miss it or, again, they could surprise everyone and Brendan Moore has built this kind of foundation where these guys continue to get better and better. So I wouldn't put it past them to, you know, continue to be in that conversation because, you know, they've got a really good young core to work with. And again, you have Sebastian Ajo signed for what should be pretty much market value at this point for the next five years. You have to be feeling pretty good about yourself with how they've done. Yeah, I think it'll be one of my favorite storylines if they continue on or they, they stay the Hurricanes, they keep hurricaning, or they, they pivot into a new era yeah, of Carolina Hurricane Hockey. Um, how are the Leafs navigating their, their cap and contract issues? How is Kyle Dubas doing this offseason? I know we've we've seen the two-phone stuff, which next-level stuff. We've always known that Kyle was a next-level um, wonder kid, but uh, the two-phones at one time was very uh, Joe Dumars-esque, 
but uh, shout out to to Kyle for being able to talk to two people at the same time with the same two phones on one on each ear. Um, how are they navigating everything? Do you think Marner's back? Do you think that they're kind of in over their head and they just have to pay too many people and that this is going to eventually blow up in their face? Like how how is Toronto doing this offseason, especially with the added pressure of another early postseason exit? Yeah, and again, it's one of those situations where you look at the way they've constructed this team and you know the talent they have, and it's one of those ones where they've been the team I think that it probably is the most to write for, about like the new system in the NHL with how you know they've been bounced out of the first round against a good team. You know, this is a team that if they either got past the Bruins, uh, especially this, like let's just say this year where you have like the Hurricanes and the Blue Jackets in front of you, maybe it's very well could have gone to the Cup final if this was that the road in front of them. So I'm sure they're pretty steamed about that in terms of the overall results. It's not what they wanted for a team that has a lot of talent. Um, you look at the moves they made. Obviously, Monner is the, the kind of the last, you know, big key they have. You know, he's still a, a restricted free agent. Maple Leafs don't have a lot of cap space right now. They have him right about, like, I think 3.8, you know, something in the $3 million range. So that's obviously not going to re-sign Mitch Monner. Um, again, you know, there's always the chance of an offer sheet. But we, as we've seen multiple times before, you know, just, you know, how rare it is and how you know, you're going to steam, a, you know, another team by doing it. You know, maybe a team like the Islanders will offer sheet him or, you know, the Canadians or something like that. But I think, you know, you're going to have to offer a guy like Mitch Monner to get him away from Toronto, you know, like 10, 10 million plus, 11 million plus, which if, that, if that's the point, we get into that same argument where, all right, if you're the Islanders and you think you have a team that could win right now with a guy like Matt Barzell, who's another young kid, you're going to get Mitch Monner at him to that equation and sacrifice not only overpaying for him, but giving up four first round picks, you know, that, that's going to like, that's, you get a guy like Mitch Monner, if that's the cost, if he's going to be that one last piece that puts you over the top, that gets you into that top tier of contention. So that's, a, uh, you know, a question mark that other teams have to weigh uh, in terms of, you know, putting him out and off sheet for him. But from the Maple Leafs perspective, I think, you know, they have a few options in terms of, you know, they can do long-term injury reserve on it, on some guys that frees up some cap space. Uh, they have a few other, you know, they could trade away a few other spare pieces they have to free up some, some, some space. I think you'll see a lot of the long-term IR stuff will help them. You see how the Lightning have kind of used that this uh, this upcoming year with a guy like Callahan, who is pretty much done with his NHL career. So they save a lot of cap doing doing a, situ- a route like that. So um, I, I think that's going to be the situation for Toronto. If you look past the Monarch situation, which I think is going to get resolved, I think they're going to free up the cap space, get him back into the fold. I don't I think, think they move someone uh, that's been an important cog in their in their four uh, in in their different lines. Their their four lines. Uh, I mean, you can see what like kind of the value. I don't expect them to part ways with. I, I think it's one of those teams where you have the four or five guys that are going to rely on day in and day out. So Matthews, you know Tavares. You know, Riley, those guys, you know, guy in the blue line like him. And then you kind of exchange the other pieces. So if it's, you know, I don't think, you know, a guy like Nylander gets moved after the kerfuffle they had with him last year. I don't think his value is particularly high, but I think everyone's on the table in terms of getting that last kind of extra little bit of cap space because look at the other guys they have for this one year at least because, uh, you know, if guys are healthy, you know, Monitor is going to, you know, hover around 80, 80, 90 points again. Tavares is going to hover around 40 goals. Uh, Matthews, who hasn't been healthy for a full year in a long, long time, you know, you haven't seen what he can do for a full healthy year. So you have the, the big guns in place. It's just how you kind of, you know, finagle around the rest of the lineup. And you've seen what Duas has done this year in terms of, you know, moving a guy like Zaitsev and bringing in a guy like Cody Cece, who 
holy God. Like if you thought that like if Bruins fans thought that, like they would pick on Jake Gardner for what, like, you know, I think Jake Gardner had like a, a minus eight rating the last two game seven, the garden, like Cody CC is going to get eaten alive. So like, you know, they still have some pieces to move around, but I, I like what the Maple Leafs have done in terms of building on this current core. And I think they have the, the means, to, you know, finagle around the cap to get Marner back into the fold. But still, I think like, you know, for as much as Dubas can be on five phones at once, that blue line still terrifies me if I'm a Maple Leafs fan. Because I think Lightning, Bruins, any team, you know, the Capitals are all going to feast on that blue line. I don't think he cares. I think that there's a reason. I remember he shared this D'Antoni piece. Um on the Rockets and just their style um, on the ringer. Mm-hmm. And it kind of shed a lot of light into how he sees it. Cause he's basically like the Daryl Morey of the NHL. Mm-hmm. We're like, I don't think he cares. I think yeah. he ultimately like wants to like, he'll live and die with Tavares and Matthews. And I think he's okay with that. Yeah. That's why I just, I'm not sure Marner's a guarantee to be back. Like, I just, I don't know. Like he, anything would surprise me outside of like, I think he just, if he can find a way to get another star, like he's going to do it. Like I think Kyle Dubas, the, the it, it shed a lot of light into how he sees uh, modern hockey and the just how much their scoring's up, uh, the pace of play is up, the kind of power forwards of um, a, another era are no longer there. Like it's just, I I think he, I think he's just focusing on like we're gonna win seven to six a lot. Yeah, like, I think um, that's what he wants. And I mean, they had the firepower to do that. I mean, again, you saw a guy like Frederick Anderson, he's a good goalie, but when you look at, you know, especially in that seven game series against the Bruins, this last playoff series, I mean, there was no team that I think the Bruins faced that when they got going in the offensive zone, you're like, oh crap, like a goal is coming here. Cause they just bring it every single time. You have a guy like Morgan Riley who your blue line can be crap, but if you have a guy like Riley who gets the fuck out of the neutral zone, good at, you know, zone, zone exits and stuff like that then that's all you need to do is get that puck up into the ozone like guys like Tavares and, and Matthews work at it and the goal is going to come. So it's a tried and true system. As you said, Cal Dubas is a very smart guy. They have, you know, a great analytics team. They know how the way the, the game is progressing. So again, as long as you have those four or five key cogs, you can do build around them and have new guys kind of in and out of the lineup. So, you know, I expect the Maple Leafs, you know, they're in a good situation. If, if they don't bring Marner back into the fold and they either, you know, trade away more guys or, Another team signs them, they get four first round picks. They'll be happy with the result they have. They're still going to have. You still got John Tavares and Austin Matthews leading the way. Like they're in a much better situation than twenty five plus other teams in the NHL for sure. All right, last thing, and then we'll wrap up here. Um, the Coyotes seems like they're going to get a new owner. Um, this owner was almost the 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 Hawks owner once the Atlanta Spirit was electing to to sell. And uh, it did not go through. Uh, apparently, like he, the, the the price that he thought he was going to pay was different at the very end stages. So he didn't get the team, um, which is good because Tony Wrestler is a very good owner by all accounts through like four years with the Hawks. So I'm happy, but um, he did not get it. And this is someone who made a lot of money early on by selling some property to Walmart. Um, that was how he became a millionaire, which is um, okay, sure. But he, as one does, right, as one does. But we know about the Coyotes' ownership issues in years past, and um, they've been looking to get a new majority owner, the current majority owner. Um, I think he actually owns all the team now, right? Like, I think he just gradually bought out the rest of the team and just has complete ownership, but he wants to become a minority owner and um, sell his majority stake. And then uh, Marulo, Maruello, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but um, he'll be the first uh, Latino owner 
um, in the NHL, which is super cool. But I I don't know. Like everything is cautious optimism, I guess. If you're um, thinking about the Coyotes in that market, and um, I don't think they can change their their city name again, um, Phoenix right. to Arizona. It turns out to not fix all their problems. But um, can you fix hockey in the desert with a new billionaire owner who um, invests heavily in the team? I mean, I think you saw how, uh, if you want to even use an example like the Hurricanes, of I mean, it's a non-traditional market that as long as you have a young, you know, exciting team and, you know, a good coach, you know, at the helm, that can really kind of go a long way in terms of, I mean, look at how, you know, the Vegas Golden Knights, how everyone kind of ran with that team. And I'm sure, you know, their first year, say they were a team that what we all expected they were going to be uh, as an expansion team and be complete trash. You know, you get, you know, good, good, you know, viewership the first year, but if they continue to slug along and you know, be a play a boring brand of hockey, doesn't do favors for anyone, especially in terms of retaining, you know, fans and getting new ones on board. So I think you look at what, you know, the, the Hurricanes have done where they add, you know, a, a you know, young coach, a, a guy who's well regarded, you know, add those young pieces in that make them an exciting team, you know, uh, get an identity to build around that really resonates with the fan base. And I mean, when I went to, Carolina to watch, you know, to, for the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, it was a great, just to see how, you know, very different, like they kind of view hockey in terms of, you know, you go outside and one of those big stadiums, it's in the middle of kind of nowhere where there's a lot of parking lots. So you have people tailgating and people like roasting pigs. Like it was very like a, def- a different fight from what you'd see like at Madison Square Garden or like TV Garden or anything like that. But it's, you know, something that was uniquely, you know, Carolina, what they wanted to do. So Look at the pieces they have with Arizona and the fact that Arizona, who had no business being even like average last year, the fact that they almost, you know, made that last, you know, late season push for a playoff spot. And they have young guys like Clayton Keller, who's exciting to watch. They add Phil Kessel, who, you know, is at the very least is going to score you goals. Um, you know, Ekman Larson, you know, Rick Tockett did a, a great job there and, uh, with, with, you know, the Coyotes. So they have the pieces in place that if they continue to build around this core, they have an owner that buys in. I don't understand. I don't, I can't see why they wouldn't be a team that, you know, really kind of excites that fan base there. I mean, you've seen how all it takes is, you know, a few really good years for a team to really kind of set that next generation of fans. I mean, look at Austin Matthews, who kind of grew up around, you know, the Scottsdale area. And he was inspired by watching guys like Shane Doan and what they did with the Coyotes back then. Um, you know, all it takes Gretzky's is just, the king of this, right? Like this is where everywhere he played, hockey grew. Like yeah. the LA stories of just like yep. why they're like just if Gretzky, whatever team he was on when he was um, in his prime, that hockey just grew in that area. The NHL, I I would kill for their next like Gretzky and just a smaller market and just played like fifteen years in Florida. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like I mean that. yeah. and that's the thing is like if they were successful and again it have like this identity that they build that, you know, is it's one of those situations where it works so well in Vegas and in Carolina last year where it's you know a team that's uniquely yours and you know, you have, you know, players that buy into the culture and what they want to accomplish there and you have the fans that buy in as well. It creates this kind of great dynamic that really kind of fuels both parties and makes it's a great thing you see in all sports but especially in the NHL where a team that could be a bunch of nobodies or a team of cap stops that really kind of, you know, can shock, you know, and change the whole landscape of the league. So I understand why, you know, if you look at the Coyotes and the tangible talent they have on their roster with a good coach and hopefully if this owner really buys in and really builds up the product, I I can't see why they can't be, you know, a Carolina or, you know, a Vegas or a team like that within the next year or two that really kind of excites that fan base because 
you know, if you win and you have good talent, uh, you know, the fans are going to be there. Like, it's all about just kind of getting them out and, you know, supercharging the fan base. So let's see what happens with them. Let's see what happens next year with Florida, which is always the, kind of the biggest example of, you know, dwindling numbers, how, you know, how they do, because, you know, they're a fun team to watch. And you add a guy like Bobrovsky, who got kind of overpaid in terms of his overall contract, but a guy like him who should really shore up, you know, the goaltending issues they had when you have good guys up front, like Barkov, you got Yandel and uh, Ekblad on the blue line. That's another team that should make a big jump. So it's going to be fascinating to see how, you know, a team like Arizona and Florida, how they, you know, if they can make that next jump and if the fans, more importantly, will follow. All right. Well, that's where we'll end today's episode of the pod. Connor, thank you as always. It's great talking hockey with you, man. Um, is there anything we need to check out from you on Boston Sports Journal before we get out of here? Uh, yeah, we have all the kind of off-season stuff going on for, you know, pretty much all the rest of the summer. Obviously, plenty of stuff for the Bruins in terms of how they're going to tackle the off-season and shore up some of the lineup changes they have and what, what to expect. So definitely follow me on uh, bostonsportsjournal.com and you can follow me on Twitter at Connor Ryan underscore 93. I'll be tweeting, uh, again, I got my Duncan Brands uphold, so follow for that, follow for GIFs, all that good stuff, and once in a while, I'll have a good story, too. So uh, you can follow me on there for the whole summer. Awesome. All right, we'll do that. Connor, we'll touch base again soon. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Sounds good, man. Thanks. Fuck. The Chase Thomas Podcast. For people who have nothing but time to kill. Chase Thomas. It's like I can feel the millions of people hearing this, and I'm already... All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by another first-time guest, uh, Ben Tankersley uh, from the RumbleSeat.com, a very good Georgia Tech blog on SB Nation. Ben, good evening, sir. How are you doing? No, no. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I saw you live in Watkinsville, so you're you're close to to Athens. How does that work as a as a big tech guy? Uh, so I'm not like most tech fans in that I. Uh, despise UGA more than life itself. Um, I'm actually a okay. uh, recent graduate of UGA. Um, so, oh. uh, yes. Uh, I catch a lot of flack for that sometimes, but my thought is um, think what you will. Personally, I think they have a, they're a good school. I just don't really care for the mm-hmm. football team. Gotcha. Did you do undergrad at Tech? Uh, I didn't. I didn't my undergrad at UGA. Unbelievable. So there's no Tech grad degree to speak of for you all uga yes sir uh my parents are both tech clubs though which is how i came to be a tech fan interesting is there ever a chance that one day you make the switch to uga uh i doubt it i'm a little too stubborn for that (laughs) all right um well tech has had a very interesting last six months i would say um paul johnson i think we just all assumed would just be there forever he just kept hanging around and winning just enough to to win and it it was just like this whole question of like whether or not tech could get anybody better and um jeff collins has entered the building um he is a big waffle house guy big energy guy um but i guess i'm still just kind of surprised that paul johnson finally left um and just the kind of way he left um were you at all surprised about cpj and just how it all ended for him at uh, Georgia Tech. Well, I, I, I got the feeling that it was close to the end. Um, I didn't expect it to happen right when it did. Um, but like even going back a few years, um, you could really start to tell that Paul Johnson was starting to get more unhappy. Uh, I remember 
certainly when uh, Mike Pavinsky was the athletic director, uh, those two had a very poor relationship. And you may remember there's a Bruce Feldman report that um, Paul Johnson was considering stepping down at that time. Um, mm-hmm. It ended up not being true. Paul Johnson stayed around a few more years. Um, Why was the re- relationship so bad? I don't even remember what the disconnect was there. Uh, I mean, the long and short of it, he wasn't a good athletic director. He w- mm. didn't really understand how athletics should work at George Tech, and it was just never a good fit. Um, and he's at Oregon the, State now, right? Uh, no, he is at Purdue. He went State. from. Okay, there it is. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, and he's at Purdue. Interesting. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, all these eighties, they leave and they bounce around, and it's hard to keep track of who's who, and just it, it's wild. Uh, but anyway, so continue on with the the Paul Johnson stuff. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm not super surprised that he stepped away from the game. Um, I think more than anything, um, he will probably take a few years off just to kind of relax and then maybe come back and coach either at another military academy or something that's not like the power five level, just because I don't think he's done coaching. Um, I could see him taking over like a Georgia Southern. Uh, He graduated from West Carolina. I don't know if he would go Georgia state um, just because there's not really much of a connection there, but I could see Western Carolina where he graduated from, um, Maybe uh, going back to Navy if anyone ever hires Ken Niamatololo uh, or some other mm. FCS school. Maybe Kennesaw State. If, uh, no, I don't think he's done. I, I, I think he'll come back to a lower pressure situation and uh, just enjoy coaching. Hmm. Yeah, so kind of like the June Jones thing or um, something right. like that. that. That would be interesting. Uh, was Jeff Collins your first choice? Um, I don't know that he was my first choice. Um, I liked him a lot better than uh, the person who's presumed to be Tech's first choice, Ken Wizenhunt. Um, I think it's safe to say that me and uh, everybody else who writes for From the Rumble Seat was staunchly against uh, Ken Wizenhunt coming in um, just because it was a move that never really made sense. Uh, bringing a guy from the NFL who has had virtually no college coaching experience especially at the head coaching level is not recruited at the college level in over 20 years. Um, but as uh, more reports start to come out about Jeff Collins, um, I, I started to think about it a little bit more. And uh, by the time that uh, his hiring was announced, uh, I was a big fan. Um, I think Jeff Collins, especially with what we've seen since uh, he has been an incredible hire and I'm not sure a better one could have been made. Okay. Um, their OC is probably the most interesting thing to me because I feel like we we just know that this tech defense is going to be good and Collins is going to turn that around. He's just been an amazing defensive mind and defensive coordinator wherever he's been. Um, but Dave, how are we going to pronounce this dude's last name? He was his OC I, in Temple. I think it's Patanoud. I would Patanoud. not swear to that. Okay. Yes. Um, uh, I would not swear OC? to that. Okay. Pro style, high speed, fast. Um, where, where are you at with the difference between Big Dave and uh, the Paul Johnson offense that uh, Tech fans have witnessed over the last 10 years? Well, uh, I think pro style is very much a loose term. Because um, when I think pro style, I think similar to what Alabama, Georgia, those kind of schools run. Uh, what I think we're going to see a lot more from Tech and what we saw in the spring game, up-tempo, shotgun, pistol stuff, 
Uh, you'll see some option stuff, but not as much. Um, heavier emphasis on passing. Uh, I know at Temple, a uh, big focus there was uh, a very balanced offense. Like it was, I believe it was almost a 50-50 split on passing and running. Um, I hope they kind of lean more towards running, just given the strength of the team. Um, I think we've got some good receivers, but um, just I don't – I guess I'm not sure about the um, offensive line protecting the quarterback long enough to get the ball to those receivers. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your year one expectations for this group? Uh, for the offense? Uh, no, just really for the team in general. What are what are you looking for in year one? What do you, what is your expectation, and what are, what does it seem like the the fan base's expectation uh, for this for this group is in year one? Uh, well, for the general fan base, uh, I think there's a lot of optimism. Uh, I've seen a lot of people come in and say, "Oh yeah, tackle win seven, eight games." Uh, I myself am a little less optimistic. Um, I think they'll be right at the five-win mark, um, maybe six, um, just with the chaos in the coastal. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, but as far as what I'm looking for this year, um, I want to see Tech be a little bit more competitive. Um, I know that it's a rebuilding season. We're not going to win a ton of games. Um, but I, I want to see Tech be a little bit more competitive, uh, specifically on defense, which has been Tech's weak point since really 2009. Um, I want to see um, really what I want to see. Um, I want to see a more aggressive defense. I want to see more press coverage from the corners because I, for one, am very tired of watching Georgia Tech's corners line up 10 yards off the receiver while Miami mm-hmm. runs 15 straight bubble screens to go down the field. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then the last thing um, – I really want to see more focus on a pass rush. That's something that Tech has not had in a long time. Um, as far as the offense, mostly I'm just curious. Uh, I want to see how it unfolds against uh, how it unfolds in a real game situation and see how um, Catanout and Jeff Collins manage that offense. Interesting. Yeah, and I think uh, it's it should be should be fun to to monitor, especially in year one. Um, is there anything specific that you're going to miss about Coach Paul Johnson at Georgia Tech? Uh, Paul Johnson can um, can be very stubborn at times, but I love watching his offense. Um, really, I you enjoyed those games? Uh, yeah, I I enjoyed watching the option run up, run out of the flex zone. There are some times that his play calling, his stubbornness would drive me insane. But at the end of the day, when it worked, it worked really well. Like, you go back watch highlights from the 2014 season, some of the best football. Okay. So you're you, – I just – the one game I'll always remember about Paul Johnson is the Tennessee-Georgia Tech game, which was one of the – just most unintentionally hilarious games for me to just sit on my couch watching just like tech play keep away and Tennessee fans losing their mind, like a three and out and just knowing that you're not getting the ball back for another seven minutes. Like there was no reason for them to end up losing that game, but like, Oh my God, that was, that was like just peak Paul Johnson. And it was, it was just extremely entertaining to watch them just play this long game of keep away and the time of possession battle and all that kind of stuff. That, that is my standout memory. I guess, and then I guess the the Orange Bowl run with Dwyer and everybody else, but mostly it's the Tennessee Georgia Tech game in Atlanta that was just um, 
unintentionally hilarious for me. Um, so recruits in 2019 and 2020 that you're excited about, do you have any names that you're, uh, that you're eyeing and you're, you're pretty pumped up about? Uh, so for the ones that are coming in this year, there are a few, uh, one was an early enrollee, uh, a Marion Brown. He's going to be coming in. Uh, I think he's got a good chance to start as the slot receiver this year. Um, he's a guy, he's, he's a little bit smaller, but he's probably already tech's fastest receiver and, It'll give us a deep threat that uh, will be a little bit different uh, from the deep threats that we had with Paul Johnson that were more the big Demarius Thomas, DeAndre Smelter type receivers. Uh, another guy I'm excited for on offense is Jamie Griffin out of uh, Rome. Um, the big, he's a big running back, and watching some of his workout videos that he posts on his Twitter, he is just incredible to watch. Uh, I think he'll have a good run here at Tech. Uh, they've got some depth at running back, but I think Griffin will get his share of time. Will uh, Collins? Oh, c- keep going. Sorry. Uh, looking at uh, the current recruiting class, uh, the guy that really stands out to me, uh, he was one of Tech's uh, first commits, uh, Tucker Gleason, who's the quarterback, uh, went to the same high school as Aaron Murray. Uh, the first real non-option-style like option style quarterback that Tech has um, brought in since before Paul Johnson. Uh, going in watching his film, he has pretty much everything you want in a quarterback. Uh, good arm strength, um, has a good zip on the ball, and is also not afraid to run it and uh, handles the ball well, runs well. I, th- I think he's going to be a really good quarterback for Tech. Okay. Um do you think Colin's personality is going to last for years? Because I always wonder with coaches with this kind of demeanor, like the must champ type, because mm-hmm. I do get some must champ vibes from him. And I just kind of wonder, does his style, does his energetic, over-the-top stuff play for recruits and play for this city and this team five years from now? Does this have a lasting power? Um, or does it some, is it something that just gets old fast if they're not winning nine, ten games every year? I mean, I think that's the key. I, it really depends on how all of this translates into wins. Um, I'm not expecting much these first few seasons. Uh, Jeff Collins received a seven-year contract because it's going to be a rebuild. Um, I know that on the schedule of these next few years is not going to be easy. Uh, the 2020 schedule is the easiest schedule that Tech has for like the next three or four years. Um, so these first few years are probably going to be a little rough. Um, I'm curious to see what happens with recruiting. Um, we've already seen it improve, maybe not so much in terms of like three stars versus four stars, but like you look at the level of the three stars with Paul Johnson, we were getting a lot of like 5.5, 5.6 kind of guys. We're using rivals ratings just because that's easier to explain. Um, whereas with Paul Johnson, we're getting a lot more 5.7 guys. Okay. Um, last thing, then we'll wrap up here. Um, Biggest game on the calendar this fall for George Tech that uh, we should all make sure to watch and um, something you have circled on your calendar. Um, it's going to be a bloodbath, but uh Clemson game will be fun. The Which one? The Clemson game. Okay. That's the one you have circled? That? Why? Uh, j- I, I think we'll learn a lot about the team at that point. Um, kind of how when is that? much they'll be able to fight against some of the better teams on the schedule. Um, first game of the season be the first real time we get to see 
the new offense, new defense in a real game setting and see how Jeff Collins manages the game. So right now that's the oh, game man. I'm looking forward to. Okay. Um, it is weird because I think they have Temple on the schedule, don't they? They do. So that should be a fun game too. Yeah, but that's in Temple, right? Yes, yes. Hmm. It'll be up in Philadelphia. Okay. I feel like the biggest game on the calendar for them is like at Virginia. I feel like Tech always plays Virginia weird. And Virginia's getting uh, better and better every year and love what Bronco Mendenhall's doing. I feel like we'll we'll know a lot based on that point in the season where like if they can win in Virginia in year one, that'd be that'd be pretty big. Yeah. I would agree. All right. Well, um this is this has been great, Ben. I appreciate you taking the time we can reach you on from the rumbleseat.com. Um is there anything that you would like to plug before we get out of here? Um, uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, uh, at FTRS blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at FTRS Ben. All right. Do that. Ben, thank you so much. Have a good rest of the week, sir. And, uh, we'll have to do this again soon. All right. Sounds good. Have a good one. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, Thank you for your support, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.